Good morning. It's good to see you all, a bunch of you on the screen. So we continue with uh, Platform Sutra of Wineng. Uh, the first time, last, uh, last round, last week, we started with a uh, biography of Wineng, how he uh, encountered the Dharma, how he traveled north to meet the fifth patriarch, uh, the way he met the fifth patriarch, then uh, the way he was sent down to work in the rice shed. And then the fifth patriarch uh, at some point asked his disciple to express their understanding with a verse uh, and uh, to, to try to choose or to find a Dharma successor. And uh, all the monks decided that there's no point to do that because they felt that the head monk is the one that will probably be the successor. And uh, so they did not uh, write anything or express their understanding. And it was uh, Shen Zhu, the head monk, who ended up writing a verse and posting it. And uh, so we are now section seven after uh, he wrote the verse. And uh, I'd just like to uh, go back to remind us his, of his verse. So the verse said, the body is a body tree. The mind is like a standing mirror. Always try to keep it clean. Do not let it gather dust. So section seven. After Shenji wrote this gatha, he returned to his room unseen and lay down. At dawn, the fifth patriarch sent for the court artist, Lu Chen, to come to the South Corridor to paint scenes from the Lankavatara Sutra. The fifth patriarch suddenly saw this gatha. After he read it, he told Lu, you've gone to so much trouble and come so far. We will pay you 30,000 cash, but we, we don't need any images now. The Diamond Sutra says, all images are illusions. It would be better if we kept this gata for deluded people to recite. If they rely on it for their practice, they will not fall into the three unfortunate states of existence, and it will be great help to anyone who cultivates the Dharma. The master then called his disciples together and burned incense before the gata. When everyone saw this, they were filled with admiration. Unless you all recite and understand this gata, he said, you won't see your nature. Anyone who relies on it for their practice will not regress. As his disciple, disciples recited it, they all did so with respect and explained how wonderful it was. So this is section 7. And Bill Porter commented on this skillful means, upaya, is the final accomplishment of a bodhisattva. Not everyone is ready for Zen. Thus, Hungjen does not dismiss this poem as useless. Wisdom depends on compassion, just as compassion depends on wisdom. There were more than a thousand monks at this monastery, and clearly, not all of them were capable of understanding the Dharma transmitted by Bodhidharma. 
Now, skillful means this, this verse uh, does offer a skillful means, right? So always try to clean it, always try to polish it so dust does not settle. Skillful means are great. We do need to be skillful. We do need to be diligent. But then there, come a, there can come a time that skillful means by themselves become something. And when it becomes something, it no longer is skillful, right? We, it is something that we may venerate or something that we may use to separate those who do and those who don't. So we have to be careful with how we use skillful means, how we practice. And then he goes on to say, the teaching expressed by Shenzhou's poem is not the teaching that sets us free, but the teaching that itself becomes a burden and ensures our further rebirth in the sea of samsara. Right? So constantly polish the mirror equals determination and discipline to stay on the path. And it can become a burden if we become too busy or even self-righteous about practice. So something to watch for. So continuing with section seven, later the fifth patriarch called Shenzhou to his room and asked, did you write this kata? If you did, you're ready to receive my, my dharma. Shenzhou said, I'm guilty, it's true. I was the one who wrote it. But I don't, I don't dare ask for the patriarchship, only for the master's consideration as to whether your disciple has acquired enough wisdom to understand what is truly important or not. And the fifth patriarch said, This gather of yours shows your understanding has only reached the threshold and has not yet entered inside. If ordinary people use yogata in their practice, they will not regress. But someone with such an understanding who seeks perfect enlightenment will never realize it. If you want to enter the door, you have to see your nature. Go back and think about this for a few days and write me another gata. If you're able to enter the door and see your nature, I will give you the robe and the dharma. Shenzhou left, but after several days, he still hadn't written anything. And Shoda Harada commented on this, saying, Hung Jen knew that Shenzhou had finally offered his poem, but he also knew from the outset that Shenzhou was not yet deeply awakened. If he were, there would have been no need to go through the Dharma or of asking Sorry, the drama of asking for poems. It's a master's job to see this clearly. You already knew well, very well that Shenzhou was where he was. What was clear for Hung Jen, however, was the, the poem says nothing about going beyond birth and death. It is a poem of morality and doctrine, but it says nothing of deeply awakening at midnight. And then Bill Porter commented, some teachers only teach one teaching. Whenever anyone asked Chen Chuchin a question, all he ever did was hold up one finger. That was the extent of his one finger Zen. 
but some teachers have a broader repertoire and adapt their teaching to their audience, as Hung Jin does. Thus, he understands that for some of us, treading water is about all we can expect. Still, the fifth patriarch was also looking for a successor, someone who could reach the other shore. And the only way to reach the other shore is to walk on water. And then Bill Porter adds to that. He says that seeing our nature is the only teaching transmitted in Zen. The rest is merely window dressing. Our nature includes every thought, every feeling, every memory, every atom of our bodies, and every dharma of our minds, all of which are empty of self-existence. To see their emptiness is to see their nature. It's not the way we think about seeing true nature or seeing our own mind. To see that it lacks separate independent existence is to see our nature, is to see its nature. The only difference between Buddhas and deluded beings is this. Buddhas see the emptiness of their nature and deluded beings see the walls of their delusion. I'll say that again. Buddha see the emptiness of their nature, and deluded beings see the walls of their delusions. Walls that, create, that are created in the mind. Now, walls that are created in the mind may be created, but if we follow them, if we trust them, if we create a life based on them, then they take shape and form. They take sound. They become something. We become something. And it may feel real. So to see the emptiness of what, of what feels real is the only way to break through. In the Hot Sutra, Avalokiteshvara says, All dharmas are defined by emptiness, not birth or destruction, purity or defilement, completeness or deficiency. Emptiness is our nature. And our nature is nothing but emptiness. The Chinese character used here is qian, which not only means to see, but also to experience. Thus, to see our true nature is to experience our true nature, to experience its emptiness. Now, it's very important to, to always uh, keep coming back to experience versus thinking versus intellectualization we may understand or we may think that we understand but we have to go beyond that we have to put that aside and go beyond intellectual understanding again and again and again come back to our everyday life only our everyday life only what we may consider as mundane or repetitive only that can verify our true nature. We can think about it, or we can say that thinking about it is maybe an entry point, which we have to go beyond. So this was section seven. Section eight. A novice walked past the milling room chanting this gata. As soon as I heard it, 
I knew it was by someone who hadn't seen his nature or understood what was truly important. So I asked the boy, what gata were you reciting just now? And the Navi said, don't you know? The abbot said, nothing is more important than life and death. And he wants to pass on his robe and his dharma. So he told his disciples to write the gata and show it to him. And he will give his robe and dharma to whoever understands what is truly important. And that person will become the sixth patriarch. One of the senior monks, Shenzhou, wrote this formless gata along the south corridor. And the patriarch told all of his disciples to recite it. And whoever understands this gata will see their nature and whoever uses it for their practice will achieve liberation. And I replied, I've been trading this meal for more than eight months and I've never been in the front of the patriarch's hall. Could you please lead me to the South Corridor so I can see this gata and pay my respects? Hopefully, by reciting it, I'll establish a karmic connection and be reborn in the Buddha land. The novice then led me to the South Corridor, where I bowed before this gata. Because I was illiterate, I asked someone to read it. Once I heard it, I understood what was truly important, and I also composed a gata. I asked someone who could write to write it on the West Corridor wall, so that I would reveal my mind. Unless you know your own mind, studying the Dharma is useless. But once you know your mind and see your nature, you understand what is truly important. My gata went, Body doesn't have any trees. This mirror does not have a stand. Our Buddha nature is forever pure. Where do you get this dust? Then I composed another one. Now, in, in some translation, there's only one. In this one, there are two. And the second one says, The mind is body tree. The body is the mirror stand. The mirror itself is so clean. Dust has no place to land. When the disciples in the courtyard saw these gathers of mine, they were all dumbfounded. After I left and went back to the milling room, the fifth patriarch suddenly came down the corridor and also saw them. He knew I understood what was truly important, but he didn't want others to know, to know that he knew. So he told everyone, this one doesn't get it either. Now, to, we have to put those two verses side by side, and I want to go back to Shohaku Kumula's commentaries on these verses. So on Shenzhou's verse, he said, Wisdom is like a clear mirror, but there's usually dust on the mirror, so it doesn't reflect things as they are. We have to continually, continually polish the mirror of our mind to keep it clean. Our body and mind is original enlightenment itself, but the dust of desire and ignorance cover it. When we polish it, the mirror becomes bright and functions as wisdom. So that was the commentary on Shenzhou's verse. Huineng's verse. 
Winnick said that enlightenment has no tree and the mirror no shape or form. Nothing exists. Since everything is completely empty, there is no place for dust to land. There is nothing that can be called desire or delusion. Our enlightenment or reality is always clear. There is nothing we have to polish and nothing we have to eliminate. So what I'd like to do is open this up for a few minutes and see what we think about those two verses side by side. It's a very important point. One represents one level of recognition and realization and the other one represents going beyond that level. So if you want to say a few words, comments, questions, let's take uh, just a few minutes to do that. Please unmute and go ahead, speak. Anyone? Questions, comments? I can go. Go. Um, I'm curious about this treading water thing that, that there's... It sort of makes it seem like there's different kinds of people, some of whom can reach the other shore and some of whom can't. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Then I think to myself, well, which one am I? I guess everybody, everybody might start to think, gosh, am I the one that's treading water or am I the one that's going to cross to the other shore? So I immediately think, oh, my God, I'm just treading water. But um, I don't know. How do, we, how do we understand that distinction? Right. So, so what you're expressing is a thought, right? What you're expressing is something that becomes something, right? A, f a thought in your mind that becomes fixed, becomes firm, right? And here is an example or here's a question. How does it become firm, right? So the thought comes and says, am I good enough? Will I be able to understand? Will I be able to reach the other shore, right? And that, that's a very important point because it is true that it arises, right? Like anything that arises in the mind. If we see it arising, allow it to be there and witness it, become the witnessing presence, what happens, right? What happens to the thought when we don't do anything about it or with it, right? When we don't make something of it, is it something, right? So, so when we don't do anything with it, we experience nothingness, right? When we do something with it, we experience somethingness. Now that somethingness becomes the other side of nothingness, right? So we get, we trap ourselves and then we try to get out of the trap that we ourselves create, right? So am I good enough, right? Am I good enough is creating me, the one who is good or not good. That's, that's, this is what, this is our task in Zazen, right? During Zazen, what do we do? We observe the mind. We observe thoughts. We observe the formulation of something that becomes static, right? But if you flow, if you move, if you continue, what happens? The dust can only form on something that is fixed, right? So in your mind, what is fixed is I'm not good enough or am I good enough? Mm -hmm. then there is dust that's going to formulate on that. It's going to gather on that. But if there's nothing for the dust to gather on, then what happens to the dust? 
So thank you, Kakuo. Yeah, I was just, I wanted to say that the, the, it's, um, it's this line, uh, someone with such an understanding who seeks perfect enlightenment will never realize it. If you want to enter the door, you have to see your nature. So I'm, I'm imagining maybe that means that maybe treading water, so-called treading water, is just treading water. Yes, going around in circles is just going around in circles, right? So turn it around. Turn it around and look deeply at the fixedness. Mm. What makes it appear fixed, right? To see, to see true nature is to see the empty nature, right? As, you, you, as, as uh, yeah. we've heard, right? That's what they're saying, right? Okay, so to see that there is nothing there does not mean to add something. It means to observe. If I add something, what I see is what I add. Yes. Watch. Watch carefully. But thank you. Thank you. Somebody else? Daiba, did you raise your hand? Hi. Hi, everyone. Morning. Um, Okay, so... um, Shen Sui's got uh, seems to um, maintain an almost codified duality in the sense where he's the, the body is the Bodhi tree, the mind is like the standing mirror. They're like two things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But Hui Nang's verse combines the two, and it's the first two lines of it, um, of the second one I'm looking at. The mind is the Bodhi tree, the mind, so that's like emptiness is form. Mm -hmm. The body is the mirror stand, form is emptiness. The mirror itself is so clean, how has dust a place to land? So it seems as if in Wee Nang's verse, he's combining the two into one, where in the first gata, he's keeping it separated. Um, That's kind of how I understood the, the two side by side. Right, so so one creates duality, the other one cuts cuts the two to one. Right. Yeah. Right. So so he's not saying that this that we should not be disciplined about practice, right? So and we can see that using that first verse, uh, well, we can actually turn towards the importance of discipline, right? The importance of continuity, the importance of establishing practice and keep coming back to our practice, right? We do need to do that, but we don't want to create anything out of that practice. That's the danger, right? Because otherwise we get right. very busy cleaning all the time. Yeah, and, and, then, and I think yeah. that's what the fifth patriarch was saying when right. he said that, you know, if you're reciting this gata, you will not regress, right? You will, exactly. you will continue, you know, to, to have that determination, but it's, just not quite there yet. Right, because determination is just determination, right? It's not, we're not, we're not, this is not, we're not striving towards determination. Determination is upaya. Otherwise, upaya becomes the goal. And then we miss the point, right? It's not about the upaya. Upaya is skillful means, means to, by which to practice. Everything we do is essentially that, right? So, you know, the chanting, we we do all that as skillful means because it is skillful, right? It is skillful. 
and it works. But we have to be careful not to make something of it or make someone of that. Someone who is... So, so there is determination, but who is the one who is determined? Right? Because if I'm the one who's determined, then you're the one who's not determined and I can create duality by that too. I'm the one who's practicing, you're the one who's not right. practicing. Right. I'm, the, I'm the better one here because I'm, I'm doing something and you're not. Right? So there are many ways to create and this is one of them. Uh, somebody raised a hand. Lisa? Hi, everyone. <clears throat> Morning. I was just thinking how deceptive maybe this idea of the metaphor of uh, dust could be. Mm -hmm. Because uh, talking about the mirror being pure, clean, right, versus the mirror being covered with dust, that in itself creates duality. Right. So it kind of <clears throat> my thinking is would the dust then be part of the mirror? You know? And in that's in the second gata um that talks about mirror being pure. There's something that just doesn't doesn't go well with me about that pure mirror. Because then the, the dust is something that has no place to be. It's almost like uh, we're denying something that is definitely there, which is our need to be working on our perception, right? In order to be present, in order to be ourselves, in order to know our true nature. The dust is part of our true nature. Yes. So thank you for that question. So... When we talk about delusion, right? We talk uh, delusion is something to 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 realize, to recognize, right? Um, and uh, purity, in this sense, we can see it. We can uh, equate it with oneness, right? Purity of oneness. Now, if we look at oneness, oneness does not increase when a person realizes. Oneness does not decrease when a person acts as as deluded. Right? So oneness is always one. The, uh, the only thing that uh, increases and decreases is suffering. When a person realizes unity or oneness, then suffering, is de suffering will decrease naturally. When the person acts as deluded, suffering will increase. Right? So, so whether we realize it or not has nothing to do, or, or we can say that unity or the purity is always the same, is always pure. Things are always pure. It's just that what we have to examine is our own desecration of what is pure. We desecrate, but even when we desecrate, it remains pure. The only thing that changes is, is the way we live our lives, the way we, are, we function with each other. Right? That's where the practice is at. What is pure has always been so, will always be so. Because it doesn't mind, it doesn't, it does not mind what we do. It is not destroyed. Even when we destroy, it is not destroyed. It is not, it doesn't, will not increase, will not decrease. Right? So, so watch, watch how uh, duality is actually born in the mind when we, when we read words like that. 
right? And it's good because we want to examine the way duality is born in the mind and see the formation of it because that's where the practice is at. So thank you. So uh, I think two more and then we're going to keep going. So uh, Rezan and then Yogan. The, uh, I think the relation between the organizational relation between the head monk and Huinang, <clears throat> that the head monk, it's almost like an occupational hazard that um, you're so busy dealing with the details and dealing with all the dualisms and so on. And so his, um, his gata reflects that mm -hmm. and within um, within the structure of Zen, um, Upaya just is always representing this uh, danger mm -hmm. that uh, the better we get at doing whatever we're skillful at, uh, the more we get into it as, as being <clears throat> yeah, more extensively real than just the moment in which we're, we're practicing it. <clears throat> so it's interesting in this story that the uh, the outsider, um, and I think Zen has this, like Taoism, has this very strong outsider dimension to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's the outsider who's able to um, overcome that um, um, kind of reification of his skillfulness, mm -hmm. um, you know, that there really are objects and that I'm really dealing with them. Uh, his skillfulness is uh, running the wheel to mill the rice. Uh, at which he's um, very good, very proficient after eight months of doing it. Um, but that it's um, kind of the whole story seems to be this reminder that skillful means is as much of a trap as it is a um, necessary um, part of our interactions with each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, uh, thank you, Rezan. So, so the, the, the more we do in that sense, the more traps we have to stay out of, right? You know, the, the busier we are with running things, uh, the more, in a way, the more we practice, the more we need to practice, right? The more involved we get with, with, uh, with formal practice, the more we need to watch, right? Because it may be useful, but it may be a trap as well. And, and looking at it from the outside can, uh, can serve that bridge, right? So we don't get trapped. So we have to keep that open mind, right? So we, again, to avoid creation, to avoid creating something out of the practice so it can remain upaya. So we, we, you know, looking at it, looking at the story, we can see both, right? We can see how easy it is to get trapped we can also see how easy it is to, to get beyond it, right? Because it's just everyday life. It's just doing what we're doing. Meaning that offers the freedom or the way out. Yeah, I, I don't know if the story illustrates how easy it is to get beyond it. Because, I mean, everybody's interested in getting the Dharma in the road in a very competitive, not very Zen-like um, um, attitude um, and it, it um, Huineng seems to really be this exception in this story um, right that it's um, 
um, it's not easy to do what Huineng is doing. Although for Huineng, it seems to be totally easy for him to do what he's doing. Right. For, from our perspective, seeing the thousand monks getting too busy looking for something, studying something, wanting to arrive somewhere else, whereas Huineng just walks in, living his life, not rejecting anything, right? Not, not quantifying anything, right from the get-go, saying, yeah, well, you and I may look different, but we're not different. He expresses the simplicity. It is just, I think often is too simple for us to see the, the, the depth. And, and that's, that's what he brings to, to this story, right? He brings simplicity, which, which is so rich, right? And so overlooked, so often overlooked. Because we look for something more entertaining or more amusing for the mind. Or we look for something else. We can, we can maybe sum it, sum it up with that. We, we always look for something else. So, thank you. Mjogen. Good morning, everyone. Um, just a commentary on Shen Xu's uh, gata, the original gata that Huineng um, heard. Um, I, I was thinking, you know, it's, it's the pain of separation and and Rezan was mentioning um, Rezan was mentioning competition. You know the competitiveness of actually wanting to be uh, a successor, wanting to be this, wanting to be that. And I was thinking, um, in terms of that, it's just it's the pain of thinking that we're all separate, and thinking that we have to be better, and thinking that we have to constantly, constantly wipe that mirror and keep it free of dust that, you know, the mirror that doesn't exist and the dust that doesn't really exist. It's just what we add to it. And, um, in this way, trying to be something that we are already, uh, and also going beyond as going beyond our limited self-centered perspective, um, going beyond is really, um, dropping self and dropping what other people think of us as this separate entity mm -hmm. instead of the interconnectedness that we all are and the, the colors that we all are. Just, that's, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually very sad, right? The way we separate, the way we create divisions, right? We create divisions within ourselves and those divisions create divisions in the world. It's our own division creating mechanism within that creates the, the same divisions without. And you know, to, to, to see unity, to see, uh, um, to see totality within is, is the only way to really change the way the world functions. Yeah, I, f I find it interesting that we, um, we train children how to do this. We train them how to see ourselves as separate by right. competing. You know, being a teacher, it's really hard to see that because then they don't see um, that it doesn't matter. But separate also is insufficient. Equal. And insufficient. Also what? I'm sorry. Insufficient. Insufficient. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Not but enough. Not yet. 
Not yet, not yet. Focus on the grades. Can I get a better grade than this one? Can I get more accolades than this one? You know, so we train people to do this from a very young age. Right. And here's Renang showing up uneducated, already complete, which is upside down to the way we think. But we are upside down. We are upside down in the way we think. That's why it seems to us upside down. He's right side up. So that's what we have to flip. No, we're not becoming complete. We are inherently complete. And that's the fundamental teaching of his showing up and realizing we are the same. You're educated, I'm not. He tells the fifth patriarch, but so what? Big deal. Right. So what? Right? It's not that education is not important. It is very important, but it, it becomes a lot more important or a lot more maybe useful when we realize unity and then, okay, now let's, let's look at education. Of course, we have to do that, but it's different when we come to it from a place of completeness. It changes everything. Uh, all right, I want to continue with this. Just one thing about that, which is important. Those two verses, uh, they actually represent the foundation of the northern and the southern schools, which some of you may remember. Winning formed the southern school, which was based on the notion of sudden realization, realizing what is. And Shenzhou formed the northern school, which was based on the notion of Gradual realization. Uh, uh, so the sudden and the gradual. And uh, I remember uh, one teacher was asked uh, if it was sudden or gradual for him. And he said it was sudden, but it took a very long time. So I think it actually captures it very well. And um, now b- both are essential, right? If we separate them, then we don't understand. We don't understand how to practice. And, you know, for Hui Neng, the, the, sudden, the sudden came before the gradual. He did polish. He did deepen later on. And that, actually, that was one of the things that the fifth patriarch told him after he gave him the robe and ball. He said, now go to seclusion. Well, for one reason, he had to do it because he knew that they will chase him. But the other thing he said, go and deepen. Go and, and, and further your realization, right? It is, it is sudden because what we realize is always there, but the gradual has to do with the habits, has to do with what we bring into the practice, has to do with karma. So there's always a need to gradually deepen and penetrate and further our understanding. But what we deepen is already, is already, already there. It's not something that will arrive later or we will arrive at later. So the gradual and the sudden actually intermingle. Creating two out of them is what we do as human beings. And so we created a split back then. And this split became a source of contention between practitioners, which of course, is what we do when we grasp and identify with opinions. And uh, this contention prom- prompted Shitu, who was the Dharma grandson of Huineng, to compose the, the Sandokai, which we chant, Sameness and Differences. 
And that's why it begins with the mind of the great sage of India was intimately conveyed from west to east. While human beings can be wise or foolish, the way has no northern or southern ancestors. And that's what brought this up. So this was a couple of uh, generations after that, um, this the formation of this, uh, of this chant. So the way itself has no northern or southern ancestors, while we can be wise or foolish, we can be realized or deluded, it doesn't matter. The way itself is beyond what comes and goes, beyond realization and delusion. As in one cannot decrease or increase. So it's important to, to see the connection or the formation because our practice has, of course, history in it. And when we, when we look at the history of practice, it's more important to, to, to use it to understand what it is that we are practicing than to understand the history of it. In other words, we're not studying history, we're studying the practice. So, uh, back to the commentary. Now, on the line, this one doesn't get it either. Bill Porter comments, in section 7, Hungjian tells his disciple that Shen Xiu's gata is worthwhile. Only in private does he tell Shen Xiu that he did not get it, right? This is not what he told his disciples. Thus, from the perspective of continuity, the expression yi, either, is an editorial mistake, he says. The Tsung Pao edition has Hungjian taking off his shoes and erasing Hui Neng's gata and then saying, this one doesn't see his nature either. So it's interesting that he actually uh, went further and he erased it. He knew what, you know, he knew the troubles that this could create. So he was able to, he was able to see where it can lead and he took action. Now, there is additional, another edition, another uh, translation of this sutra, there is additional section that appears right after Huineng's ask a government official that happened to be there to transcribe the poem for him because he was illiterate. And it says, Huineng says to the official, I too have a poem. Since you can read, could I impose upon you to write down this poem I have fashioned? The official was greatly surprised and, and said, How extraordinary! You composed the poem. Huineng responded, Do not despise a beginner. The training here is to realize true nature. But do you think one has one do you think one only has true nature because one trains? In other words, do you think that if I'm not training, I am lacking of true nature? From the beginning, we all have a clear nature, true nature. We don't gain it because we train. But it may take some time to awaken to it. If you can understand that, you wouldn't mock a beginner. Beginners can also awaken. In fact, people may actually have a harder time with lots of intellectualization. By doubting me, you diminish yourself. It's a very important point. By doubting me, you diminish yourself. By saying you're deluded, I'm saying I am deluded. Or I am not seeing my own true nature. 
To see, to recognize a Buddha in oneself is to recognize a Buddha in another. Right? Because what we're doing is when we see delusion and we communicate with, with delusion from a deluded state of mind or state of being, we are functioning within delusion. But to see the Buddha within is to see the Buddha without. Only a Buddha can see a Buddha. Right? So from the Buddha mind or the Buddha eye, we can see a Buddha. From the eye of delusion, we see delusion. It's always one, even when we chop it up. So, another thing, a Bill Porter on direct hearing versus reading. First, Huineng hears the Diamond Sutra, and now he hears Shenshu's formless gata. Rare is the account of a Zen master enlightened while reading a book. Oral understanding is far more direct far more basic than visual understanding. Being in this world's primal sea, one second, beings in this world's primal sea developed ears long before they developed eyes. And written language hasn't been around for more than a few thousand years, while spoken language goes back hundreds of thousands of years, if not further. Civilization may be based on visual comprehension of symbols, but the liberation of the mind is often hampered, even doomed, by dependence on such media. This book, too, hardly compares to hearing the teaching directly, and listening to words hardly compares to hearing the wind in the pines. Now, how amazing is that, right? To to see that what we, we, we put so much stock in can be hindering, can be a trap for us. We rely so heavily on the thinking mind, on books, on learning, on what we add, that we don't look at what is inherent. We are blind to what is inherent because we put so much stock and so much value to books, to learning, to accumulating, to intellect. So it's a very important point that he makes here that nothing can surpass hearing the wind. You want to understand? Listen to the wind. It is always teaching much more than words can teach us. And there's another section here that is actually appears in other translations between section 8 and 9, which I want to go to. At the end of the previous section and leading to this section, the Tsung Pao edition adds this. And so everyone thought that that was the case, that Hui Neng's gata wasn't good enough, right? Because he, he said, this one doesn't get it too, and then he erased it. The following day, the patriarch went unobserved to the milling room and saw me wearing my waste stone milling rice. Apparently, Huineng was very skinny and light. So now he had to, of course, you know, step on the, on the rice and he wasn't heavy enough. So he tied a big stone around his waist to become heavier, to be more efficient. And he said, someone who seeks the way forgets about their body for the sake of the teaching. This 
would seem to be true of you, but tell me, is this rice ready or not? And I answered, the rice has been ready for a long time. It just needs to be sorted out or checked. Now, they weren't talking about rice, right? And he understood, Huineng understood, that this question is not about rice. This question was about his own understanding. Are you ready? Is the rice ready? Is the, is the same as, are you ready? So, and then he says, it has to be sorted out. He meant his realization needed to be verified. The patriarch then struck his staff on the ground three times and left. And I understood the patriarch's meaning when the bell was struck three times. I entered his room. And that's the beginning of the third watch of the night. So this exchange is actually, uh, um, if you study koans or you read koans, we see, th you see exchanges like that, right? Where they say something, but they mean something else. Or they use what is mundane to point at what is beyond what the, the, the eye can see or what the ear can hear, right? Beyond what we assign, because rice is not rice. Why? Because rice is everything. Because a grain of rice is eternity. So we have to go beyond our own interpretations, our own understandings. We have to go beyond the mind, to understand the mind. So, nine. At the beginning of the third watch, between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., the fifth patriarch called me to his room. And uh, Tsung Power Edition adds, he made the curtain of his robe so no one would see. Now, this is uh, one thing I want to add to this before we go on. This secretive manner in which Winang received the transmission is actually still maintained by the Soto tradition today. Not by the Rinzai, by the Soto. And uh, so when, when there is transmission happening, transmission ceremony, Dharma succession ceremony, in, in our tradition, it takes place at midnight. And uh, only a handful, if that, of people are invited to, to participate, mostly because they have to have, there are roles they have to take or participate within the ceremony itself. And the room, it is usually, it usually happens in a small room, and the room is covered inside, the walls, the ceiling, the windows, all covered with red cloth. And red because uh, uh, red was an uh, uh, important color in China. And I remember in, in my own transmission, uh, we, we worked for a few hours covering the room inside with the, this red garment. The walls, the ceiling, the, the walls, everything was fully covered. And, and the other thing about red is it symbolizes the womb. It's a small room, all covered inside with, re with red. And it's, it's the womb of the Buddha. And uh, we are, in a way, nurturing the sacred fetus. And uh, Buddhas are born from that womb, or the womb of wisdom, we can say. So this is still practice. It's not the same as in Rinzai. In the Rinzai tradition, 
there is a uh, there is they make a big hoopla from transmission. Uh, it's usually a very large gathering. There's a lot that happens. Uh, I don't know if a few of you have been to to a transmission ceremony uh, in the Rinzai tradition, but uh, it's a very big deal with a lot of people. Whereas in the Soto tradi tradition, it's very quiet and uh, mostly unseen by others. The next day, we do talk about it to explain a little bit because it's important to, uh, to share it with the Sangha. But it is mostly quiet and unseen. So just to, to make a connection between Hui Neng's uh, story and the way we are maintaining our practice. So, uh, he called him to his room and then he said, he explained the Diamond Sutra to me. As soon as I heard the words, I understood. Now, this is the second time he's encountering the Diamond Sutra, right? And that night, unknown to anyone, I received the Dharma. As he transmitted the robe and the direct teaching to me, and I became the sixth patriarch. Now, the robe, the robe is an embodiment of trust that has been handed down, handed down from one generation to the next. But the Dharma is transmitted from mind to mind and must be realized by people themselves. Then the fifth patriarch said, Huineng, since ancient times, the lives of those to whom this teaching has been transmitted have hung by a thread. If you stay here, someone will harm you. You must leave at once. Rarely do we reside in no place. And this is uh, actually a commentary. We think about what day of the week it is. Upon hearing a bird sing, we think about its name. Upon seeing a flower, we think about how nice it looks. Instead of residing in no place, we reside in a small self. This is necessary for functioning in the world, but it is not the actual truth. And this, is, this commentary is about abiding nowhere. Abiding nowhere. Raise the body-mind. Only when abiding in no place can we experience the direct truth. When we hear the birds chirp from no place, our mind is freshly born in every moment. Because we seek comfort, we feel we have to reside somewhere. Because we are a part of society, we feel we... We feel we have to refer to others by judging them. But that's not how our mind works when it is functioning in its clearest. If we don't, if we don't encounter the sunlight and the moonlight and all the 10,000 things exactly as they are, we'll become lost in our ideas about those things or opinions about them. Only while directly perceiving can we live and work responsibly and creatively. Abiding nowhere, awakened mind arises. This is humanity's deepest truth. Very clear, very true. So the first part of this sutra turns around this event. On the one hand, the transmission of the robe, the symbol of authority to teach this teaching. And on the other hand, the transmission of the teaching itself, the Dharma of Zen, 
the direct teaching of mind to mind, which is only possible when no mind stands in the way. Again, Huineng is presented as a Buddha in waiting, waiting only to receive the authority to teach the teaching he already understands, but does not yet have words for it. So this is another way to understand Upaya. The teachings are already, everything that we teach is already there, is already always present. So, so words, in a way, can point to it if we don't get trapped by them or can become a hindrance. And as long as we understand that what the words are pointing at has always been this way, then they are not a hindrance. They are a pointer. But if we make too much of the words, we miss the point. And direct teaching. So this became a hallmark of what developed into Southern School of Zen and is contra contrasted with the in indirect teaching of successive stages attributed to the Northern School, which basically claimed that you have to do one, two, three, four, five, for a certain amount of time before you can arrive, before you can realize. Aside from the contentiousness of such an ascription, the main function of calling this direct teaching was to remind students that the separation in time between one thought and the next was just another delusion, and that the existence of a period of time between delusion and enlightenment was likewise a delusion. This teaching follows from the concept of Buddha nature. If we all have the Buddha nature, then we are already basically Buddhas. While insights come and go, some deeper than others, enlightenment isn't partial or transient. It's, it's all or nothing. Hence, this teaching is called direct. So, Let's, uh, let's take a few minutes to open it up and see what we feel about it so far. Please unmute and go for it. Hi, y'all. Good morning. Um, good morning. The part about listening to the wind and not necessarily find in a book um, also reminds me of uh, there was this beautiful poem that's on a building, this small building that's in the Brooklyn Botanic Garden in the children's garden area. And it says, he is happiest who hath power to gather wisdom from a flower. Um, but then I also just finished reading a book called A Flower Does Not Talk. Um, and so uh, just this, this notion of, of learning and listening and studying, but not necessarily from ideas and words, but from the experience. If something's not speaking, what is it saying? And how do you listen to it? And um, um, many of us have, I would imagine you've had some sort of experience maybe with moon. And we're also talking about the dust on the mirror and how the, the full moon 
we can have this idea that uh, on a clear night is when we can really see the moon at its fullest and most beautiful. Um, but I could say from trying to film the moon, it's far more interesting when there are hate clouds in the way. And when, when the clouds are passing by and blocking it and revealing it and blocking it and revealing it, that it's, uh, it's not really any more hidden. Um, we just think that it's hidden. We think that the dust is covering it. Like Uzo was saying, we, you know, that maybe the dust is really just part of the mirror itself. Uh, so yeah, maybe there's just something really beautiful to find in, in listening to our environment and in uh, giving our attention in that way. And, you know, having a conversation where uh, you're not necessarily just saying words, reifying ideas, but that you're sort of spitballing, you're throwing it out there and kind of seeing what feels right. You know, when it comes out of your mouth, you can like, you can feel the words sense them in a way and as long as you're not clinging to them as ideas uh, there can be a lot of flow and learning so whether actual speech is occurring or not it's learning in a different way thank you and kai hazy it is hazy indeed and you know when we are um Beauty is not is often not what we think it is. Uh, it's not not stinky, right? It's not that we have to get rid of anything, reject anything, go beyond anything. It's the moment by moment life's challenges, the difficulties in life. This is where it's at. Because if we reject that, we reject everything. So when we turn towards the moment-by-moment -moment challenges, all challenges, and there are plenty, all difficulties, that's where we find it. As long as we understand that beauty is not what we think it is. Anyone else? Yes? Yes, Mjogen. Um, I thought of this quote that I read in Tricycle um, from a Tibetan teacher. I forgot what the Tibetan teacher's name was, um, but it said, this is a dreamlike illusion, a temporary mirage, a fleeting fabrication let it go and rest. Yeah, it sounds like the poem that ended the Diamond Sutra. Or a version of that. He uses that, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one thing I want to point at, actually. Another, um, this is commentary from Shodo Arada. And he tells a story, it connects to what we talk about. He tells a story about the once a nun named Mujinso asked Hui Neng to explain a specific word she was unable to understand while reading the Nirvana Sutra. And Hui Neng apologized, saying, but I don't know how to read. And she responded, how can someone as wise as you not know how to read sutras? And then he said, the Dhamma is known in experience, not in words. 
And, and then Shodalada commented on this saying, he understood this, this central point very well. Today, there are many religions, nearly all of which are so concerned with the minutia that they miss the larger point. Our gratitude to the sun, to the seasons, to our food arises spontaneously and naturally. Today's religions often have very little ability to bring people back to this basic vitality that is able to accept and realize all things. The Platform Sutra, when we read it, does this naturally. Does it for us is the question, right? So, so it, it, it can deliver that, it can point at it, but it's very important that we look at or we examine the way we read. Right? It, what we read stirs the mind up. It's supposed to do that. It's fine. But how do we go beyond interpretations? How do we go, how do we go beyond painting something or creating something of it? And again, the simplicity, and this is what he's talking about here, right? Our gratitude to the sun, the seasons, and the food, everything arises spontaneously and naturally. We don't need anything in order to turn to that because it's there. It's just that when we turn towards our interpretation of that, we become trapped. And then religions often use that mechanism, our, uh, 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 how we fall in love with interpretations. And we need to get beyond that. Because that's not going to be, that, this will not be given from another. But this is, again and again, our own responsibility to get beyond that. Because, you know, religious practices are meant to align us with reality, with that reality, not to separate us from each other. And sadly enough, often religions do that. So, important point to, to, to turn towards. Any other questions, comments? Rezan, you want to say something or? Well, I just thought you did. Kaku. I'm thinking the moment is story is so perfect for um, this dimension of Zen, that if he didn't exist this way, it seems that Zen would have created the myth of his life to present this, mm -hmm. that um, the illiterate, the beyond words, the, all of those elements of his life are so um, intrinsic to the presentation of Zen. Um, right. Just that, uh, I mean, so it almost raises the question whether Huineng actually existed this way or whether that story is so important for Zen that uh, it's the way that the story evolved. Well, we exist this way. What does it matter, right? That doesn't matter. We exist this right. way. Right? So, so Huineng's story can, can serve the purpose, right? Can be a mirror to us, a reminder to us. Yes. And if it does that, great. If it doesn't, then it becomes another story on the bookshelf. We have many. 
We need more bookshelves. No? So Gyoko is saying no more bookshelves. <laughs> he doesn't need bookshelves. Yes, I saw that. Immediate reaction. No more. We have no more walls. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, anyone else raises a hand? Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna talk about um or ask about this idea of transmission. Yeah. It's very interesting, you know, Rinzai has the pomp and circumstance, you know, and the Rinzai, Ada Roshi, for example, had, had you know only one successor and there were so many possible students. Mayazumi Roshi, who took a more, I guess a more Soto approach, had so many successors. So I was just thinking about how do we get this Edo had more had more than one. By the way, Edo had more than one successor. Um but very few over the many years that he was Roshi. Yeah, but he um, had he had uh, he had some, and uh, there's only one abbot. He, maybe that's what there's one abbot. I mean, oh, uh, okay. right? But uh, but there are other successors. But go ahead. What are you anyway, saying? Anyway, I was just I was just thinking about it. You know, in terms of well, two things come to mind. One is, you know, <clears throat> when there's somebody a Zen teacher has a kind of a problematic character let's just say charitably mm -hmm. um you know there's some trouble with some zen teacher but they're also a great teacher what's the transmission you know because i've encountered this with a few nefarious zen teachers in my lifetime and so you know why is that transmission so sort of special and what are we transmitting if it also goes with i don't know various different problems that i don't need to go into so, you know, you go back to, the, to what is considered the first transmission, right? When the Buddha got up and started to, and actually did not talk, he just held the flower and started to twirl it. And uh, Mahakashyapa was the only one who smiled or, respond, or, or, or communicated without words, right? And there was, at that moment, mind-to-mind -mind understanding, right? So, and the transmission goes, it becomes direct because there's no buffer. There's nothing in between, right? And, and oneness is one when there is that sense of continuity, there is a transmission. Now you can ask, well, why, you know, why this person and not that person, right? So, uh, so even Bodhidharma, right? Bodhidharma had one, more than one student, right? Disciple, although he gave that transmission to Huike. Right. And, you know, when he asked them all to express their understanding, you know, he commented to each one of them, you know, you've got my skin, you've got my my mirror. And then to Huike said, you got the mirror. Right. His understanding was the deepest. It doesn't mean that he was more worthy. It doesn't mean that he had what others did not have. But the depth of the understanding and our ability to express that depth is what matters. Now, yeah, there's, there, there may be one teacher, right? Or one, one person to whom that transmission was given. But, but if we make something of it, it becomes something, right? And then it's no longer serving the point or the purpose, no longer upaya, right? So, so again, an opportunity to see what we make of hierarchy, Right? So, so hierarchy in Zen is not meant to be something. Right? It's there for a purpose, for a reason. And if we don't understand that, then it becomes something and then we, we, uh, we create a religion in a way, right? 
a religion that is based on hierarchies, based on those who have and those who do not have. Well, what's the difference? We could be doing the same thing everywhere. Right? And we're trying to do something different. Mm. So, so don't create. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, Mjogen. Just a question. What happens with problematic teachers? Like their behavior becomes very problematic. Yeah, that was kind of my question. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an important question. What, what do you mean, what happens? Uh, in what way? No, I mean, look, the Dharma is transmitted. And I guess, I mean, obviously our essential nature doesn't change, but mm -hmm. our behavior or our manifestation of um, of this essentialness becomes yeah. different. And so sometimes the behaviors of certain teachers, as we've seen over the years, and I'm sure as Kako has seen, mm -hmm. um, it becomes very problematic because what are you transmitting? What is he transmitting? And how is that separate if it is separate from uh, the, the transmission itself? Is the behavior separate from the transmission? Yeah, the behavior is cannot be separate because because we are a karmic. There's always that, right? There's always the karma, right? And uh, there have been, and there will be, and there are those who abuse it, right? Uh, and uh, maybe do have awakening experiences, um, but yet you know the karma can be so powerful that it can take over, right? Um, was it Soren Rush who said when, when, the, when the, the light is brightest, the shadows are deepest or something like that, you know? So, so, and that's referring to exactly that. You know, there could be a, a bright light, but it doesn't mean that the shadows disappear, right? So, so the responsibility of a teacher, of a Dharma successor is, is greater than, um, than all students in a way. It's a much greater responsibility to maintain the vitality of the teachings and to, to be that, to embody that. Now, it's not about acing it. It's about realizing that while we are doing it, there is a very strong momentum of karma in the background. It's not going anywhere. And the question of how do we meet the karma is, is imperative, more so for a teacher, to, to constantly examine, to hold... The, the feet to the fire on a regular basis. Now, in some cases, what happens? In some cases, the Sangha itself rejects, expels the teacher when the teacher has become abusive, for example, right? So, so some Sanghas have kicked out teachers and found another teacher. In, in, if, even in, in the White Plum, there were teachers that were kicked out of the White Plum Asanga. And the White Plum uh, is an affinity group of teachers, right? Teachers that came down from Maizumi Roshi. So over the years, there have been teachers who have been abusive in different ways and they are no longer a part of this organization. So there are grievance procedures, there are ways to address it. And it's not just Zen. I mean, in all the other organizations, the same thing, right? So, so there are ways to, to uh, examine 
what's going on, and then uh, if, if, if it's to a point of abuse, then the person will no longer have the authority and the position. So you're saying karma sometimes overpowers um, our habits, our karmic habits overpower the transmission of the dharma. Right, and you know, and I think when when I read personally, when I read stories and I hear and I hear about hear about it, it makes me even more determined because I realize I see how fragile it is. Not it how fragile we are in our practice, right? How easy it is to veer off. Even after we understand, even after we have experiences of Kensho, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't mean that Kensho erases karma. That's one of the ideas we have to get rid of. Kensho doesn't erase anything. It's just, in a way, it's showing us what we have to work with. And you mean we can still learn from those teachers or reading their books? For example, I, if I read a book of a teacher that was you know, yeah. ousted for sexual misconduct, which I did just a few weeks ago, can I still you know, enjoy that transmission, so to speak, even though I know that that guy you know, did something against, I don't know, other members of the Sangha? Like right, because wisdom, right, the person may have expressed words that are, they come from wisdom. It doesn't negate that. The fact that they went against that doesn't negate their own expression because if their expression comes from wisdom and they did not follow their own words, that doesn't mean that the words themselves are not good pointers. As long as you know how to take those words and ignite your own practice, then, 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 then it's good. Then it works, right? So, so you don't want to you know, throw everything away because the teacher did not know how to follow wisdom. It yes. doesn't mean anything. Wisdom is not tarnished when we destroy each other. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like when you have somebody, well, for example, my father, my father was an alcoholic and um, I didn't like the way he was expressing himself. He was very abusive. But, you know, he did say some things that were very tender and very, very kind and compassionate. So taking the words that come from love and compassion, right? Yeah. And not, not, um, not just tossing them out just because, and I'm not diminishing it. I'm just saying just because um, he veered off or he he made a mistake or he didn't understand his own life. Yeah, I think I think can we can I be speak? more compassionate. If anything, I think we can understand that uh, h- how challenging it is to be human, right? And, uh, you know, and also how different we are in terms of karma. Well, we're very different, right? So it's not about good or bad. It's about understanding what we're working with. So we can grow in compassion, understanding that, yeah, while even with people that had deep understanding, still they got trapped by karma. So... It makes practice more realistic. Anyone was going to talk? I just somebody uh, raised the hand or started to talk. Sugiyoko? So just a short comment. Um, I think maybe from my experience uh, with teachers, it can be um, 
disappointing and um, confusing. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know which feeds the other or they feed each other. So um, I, I think you've explained very well that um, that people have different aspects mm-hmm. and there can be wisdom. And then in another moment, uh, very diluted, abusive behavior. Right. Uh, but that doesn't negate the wisdom. But for the practitioner, um, the challenge is to be able to discern. And um, work with one's own karma, I guess. And uh, yes. strive to have more... Um, what seems like more beneficial behaviors. Right, right. I guess the yeah. thing I wanted to say was the disappointment and confusion that arises. Right, but the disappointment arises because of our ideas. Yes. That's all there is, you know. So if, 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 you, if you can put aside the idea or the expectation, then it's no longer, dis- well, yeah, there is a disappointment, right? But then you know how to work with the disappointment because it's not you know, there with my ideas of how it should be or it's meant to be this way, right? If I let go of the way I think it's meant to be, then I can work with the way it is. But if I hold on to the way I think it's meant to be, then I have a problem because it doesn't match, right? It doesn't match. But, But who's saying it has to match my idea of practice? Me, right? I'm the one who's saying it. That's all. It's not written in any book. But as long as I'm able to let go or put aside my idea of the way it's meant to be, then I can, um, I can accept it. I can work with it, right? And then, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go, go. Please. It can also the disappointment or what we recognize as unskillful behavior in a certain teacher can actually um, strengthen. Uh, our own practice uh, was we've had the discernment and we can recognize that the discernment has been there and clarify yes uh, what we think practice should be exactly right and also uh, there are consequences right even when we are compassionate and understanding it doesn't mean the person is free of consequences there are consequences Mm -hmm. and nobody is free of consequences Right? There are consequences to acting the way we act to avoid avoiding something. There will be consequences, right? So, so even when we understand someone, when we understand that the karma was very powerful in this person's life, it doesn't free the person from consequences. So we can be compassionate at the same time. Say, well, you're no longer having. You don't have that position anymore. You lost the position. You don't. We don't trust you, right? There are consequences, but, you know, we can love you and not trust you. Because we're not going to allow you to hurt other people, for example. And that is our responsibility as practitioners, right? As Sangha members. So, uh, I wanted to uh, just wrap this up, but a couple things I want to read before we do that, so we can next time continue from there. This is the commentary. The truth is beyond objects. This true Dharma, 
Dharma-eye isn't in the form of a ball or robe. Certificates of transmission are given uh, to this day, but the only thing that matters is the true capability of the enlightened student to know this deepest truth directly. If people become attached to the idea of the robe, Buddhism will be destroyed. It will, it will distract many people from the true point, which we kind of touched on before. And then uh, uh, section 10, short section, after receiving the robe and the Dharma, I left during the third watch and the fifth patriarch accompanied me personally to the Nine Rivers Ferry. As I boarded, we said goodbye. And the patriarch instructed me, go now and do your best to take the Dharma south, but don't spread this teaching for three years. Wait until the hard times are over before you go around teaching. And be skillful when you guide those who are deluded. Once they're able to open their minds, they are not different than those who are enlightened. Our farewells done, I headed south. So this was the, the farewell, the saying goodbye, the fifth patriarch being very much aware of what he has done and the consequences that will arise because of his action. He gave, uh, he entrusted the Dharma, the Roman ball, with somebody that just showed up eight months or nine months before, right? Did not study with him much, did not spend much time at the Zendo, was not ordained, completely different than what than the expectation of the time, right? And that by itself, I think, is showing something very important in terms of Zen practice and understanding. The pra what we practice or what we realize goes beyond what we create. So we may create systems and hierarchies and all kinds of uh, uh, structures, but what but all that is there only to realize what is beyond structure, what is timeless, what does not need structures. And I think that as long as we understand that, we can be comfortable with working with structures and we don't feel hindered by the structure. I don't like this. Why are we doing this? Why are we chanting? Why do we bow? I want to do whatever I want, whenever I want. Then we actually have completely mis we have misunderstood, we misunderstood what freedom means. Liberation has to pass through structures, not so we can be confined by or trapped by, so we can understand that which is beyond. Now, it may sound like a dichotomy, but it's the way it works. So we will uh, continue next time, but I just wanted to get to that point of... Uh, the farewell, uh, so we can understand. And then from that point on, there's another section that deals with uh, some of the monks chasing him and the way he uh, responded to that, Huineng. And then after that, uh, come the, t the actual teachings of Huineng. So, to be continued. All right, thank you.